listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I got to tell you something, people. The gentleman on my show today, he uh, he's not only a very talented actor. I found out he's a musician. He's also a photographer. He's also a painter. And he's good looking. So he's one of those guys that we go, what the hell do you do? Do you do anything wrong? And he has been working a lot. And my guest is Yule Vasquez. How you doing, Yule? Oh, Steve, man, I'm good. I, I, I think I'm going to take you with me everywhere <laughs> so you can give me that introduction. I, I don't know what to say. Uh, that's very generous of you. Well, no, I got to ask you, though, because I always, you know, so many actors are also musicians. They're so fascinating. People don't know that. They don't see the different, you know, when you're younger and I think when you're creative, you use all your different outlets. And for you, I want to talk about your acting career, but I want to talk about your artwork and your photography because... I'm sure you don't get to talk about it a lot, and and your your artwork is is sort of got a little of a Basquiat feel. It's got that like cool uh, introspective thing. Tell me about what what did you start first with your career with as a kid? Was it art? Was it photography? Was it music? How did this all start? It it was music. <clears throat> I started I think at around six years old, um, maybe like five years old, as a uh, a drummer I, on, uh, on boxes, boxes and like uh, pencils. And I remember I found, I was telling somebody, I was telling Steve, Steve Lawrence, of the, the makeup artist on the show that I, I found in the neighborhood, I found um, somebody thrown away a speaker grill, you know, from like a, and it was like a, it was like aluminum or something. And I thought, well, that, that that'll make a good symbol. Um, so I had boxes and that speaker grill and I would just like, I would uh, I would play drums and 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 the reason why it was drums really is because my mother was an actress when she came from Cuba she was an actress uh, part of a theater group in in Miami and um, when she would go to the theater um, she would bring me to the theater I, there was no one really to look after me um, you know we, we we didn't have a lot you know but my mother was working and. So I'd go to the theater where they're not set. The theater, what they did was it was like a variety show. They would do like, uh, it was acting and then there was like, like singing and um, comedy uh, sketches. And there was a band. And where I would sit, like I would sit, in, I would basically sit in the audience right by the drummer. That's where I would sit with like whatever, a sandwich and I'm waiting for my mother to get done. So I would sit by this drummer and I would watch this guy play. And I, and I thought, well, shit, that looks pretty fucking cool, um, you know. So I started, I got some boxes, and I literally, I just made my own drum kit. And then, I'd say about a year and a half after that, my mother bought me a drum kit, which is, I mean, if you think about buying a, you know, a, a six, seven-year-old kid a drum kit, um, is pretty insane, because uh, drums are loud, and especially, you know, when the kid's trying to learn how to play them, it's not, you know, it's like listening to somebody learn how to play an instrument is one of the most wretched thing you could do. My brother, yeah. my brother was a drummer and I remember they originally set it up in our den and I would get pissed off as, as my older brother because I would want to watch TV and he'd be practicing. So then they took it down the basement and we had a ping pong table, but because our basement would flood. They put the drums on the ping pong table. So I was always pissed at my brother because he ruined all this stuff. Yeah. Well, you were, you were, you were lucky you had a den in a basement. We, my mother, <laughs> my grandmother, my sister and I all lived in what they called in Miami Beach, uh, uh, an efficiency apartment, which is like a, a, a studio apartment with like a little kitchen. So I shared a bed with my grandmother because I was little, I was the, youngest and the only the only boy and my my sister had a bed and my mother had a, slept on a couch i mean and uh you know we came from cuba we didn't there was we didn't have a lot um uh, my mother worked very hard to um do the best she could for her kids it's a very typical immigrant story you know i'm sure i'm sure you've heard them before so in there, and that apartment was the drum kit, and it was a red sparkle drum kit. So from there, I start playing drums, and then from there, I segue into guitar. So 
I never set out to be an actor. Um, I, I acted as a little kid because um, I was the default kid in this theater company that my mother was a part of, so they would throw me in, in place. But all my heroes were British guitar players. So like around, I think I should add that around 11, 12, I, I switched to guitar. I just thought guitar was way cooler. And the way that happens, my sister had, my sister had a radio and I, I was, I remember coming out of the shower. I'll never forget this as long as I live. We're coming out of the shower and the, and the middle section of whole lot of love was playing. And uh, it was like, I was transfixed. I was like, what is that? And I remember I had a towel. I was like, what is that? And then the, that guitar solo comes in and I was like, check please. I want to, whatever that racket is, I want to, I want to figure out how to make that racket, you know? So I switched to guitar, you know? And then I started playing guitar and then I became a guitar player and I am to this day a guitar player and I played in bands most of my life and made records and, and toured and did had that life. And then acting comes back in later uh, in a very unexpected way, you know? Well, the guitaring and, you know, I know you recorded some albums and you were in New York and playing. What was it like for you getting a record deal back then? Because... You know, I try to explain to people, there used to be something called record deals. <laughs> they don't have them anymore. But what, no. was your, what was your process to getting into the industry and actually getting an album made? You know, nobody, nobody's asked me that question. I, it's amazing because it's an incredible question. And I think because you understand that at one time there was a record business that was... Uh, an incredible industry and a very hard one to get into. Everything that you wanted to do as a young musician was get a record deal. Getting a record deal meant that you had hit success. You know, what, what you learn later is that that's just sort of the beginning of the, of the struggle. You know, now you make the record, you know, and you have your, you know, you have your entire previous years to write this first record you know it's that second record that's a real bitch you know because you gotta write it much quicker but for me um the path was again uh, uh a fortuitous one i was in, i was playing in a band in miami i was in a cover band in miami and um i basically we, we played some of our own uh material as well but our bread and butter was playing covers and we were very, very heavy. We played Ozzy and Judas Priest and all this stuff. And, um, uh, I sort of had taken that as far as one could take it. And, and my, my, my then girlfriend at, at the time, this woman, Gigi Freddie, um, had a friend that lived in New York that worked at Epic records and Epic records was looking at this band at the time called urgent and they were looking to sign this band and they weren't sure. And they were showcasing this band. They were doing demos. And her friend said to, to my, my then girlfriend said, uh, you know, they're looking to, to get a new guitar player. Would you be interested in auditioning? I, you know, I'd never been to New York. I mean, it's like, you know, I was, I was like, I was a kid from Miami, you know? And, and, and she said like, you're going to audition. You're, we're going like, you're going to do this. You know? And I was like, wait, what? Like started, you know, I always lived close to my mom, big mama's boy, you know, like just a uh, terror, man, fucking terror. You know what I mean? But I go to New York and the, the day after I land, I go and have a meeting with, uh, <clears throat> with the manager of this band. And I got one of the guys in the band and they handed me a tape and said, learn these songs. And, uh, we're, the audition is this day, you know, we're at the studio. So, um, I learned the songs, you know, I, I learned the songs and I went to the studio. Um, and another guy was auditioning for the bass part, bass player spot, a guy called Cliff Black, who has been my friend since, since then he'll be Cliff and I will be friends till the day we die. I mean, he's one of the greatest humans ever and just a brilliant, brilliant musician um uh so 
we auditioned and I got the job. I got the fucking gig. So now I'm in a, this band in New York, you know, and now I'm moving to New York, you know, and I'm living in New York and started rehearsing with that band and, and doing shows. And, uh, you know, that band did, we didn't do a lot of shows with that band. That band really was on a track. They were going to rehearse and we we're going to go into pre-production and then wound up not go, not going with Epic Records, wound up getting a deal at a label that EMI had at the time who was, that they had just launched. It was a rock label they were launching. It was called Manhattan Records. Manhattan Records had just signed, um, had just signed, uh, God, his name escapes me. Uh, he's married to Daisy Fuentes. Richard Mark. Exactly. So, we were label mates, you know, they just signed Richard Marks and then they signed this, they signed this rock band and, and we go and make a record, you know, um, we go make our first record and we made it a studio in West Orange, New Jersey. So you make the record. Now what happens with the band? So we make this record. Um, we make this record. It was produced by Ian Hunter and Mick Ronson, um, who at the time were represented by with the same manager. Uh, we had the same managers then, which at the time, what did know? I was I was young and I didn't care. I had a, I was in a band with a deal, you know. But and I was in a band with three brothers, which is an interesting thing because you never feel like you're really in the band. So me and Cliff always felt like we're not brothers. I'm not saying that they weren't like, they were nice guys. You know, I'm, I'm just saying you just never feel, you're never going to be a brother. No. I mean, that's just the fucking reality, you know? Um, and it was my second time being in a band with, with brothers. It's a fucking weird jam. But anyways, so we go make the record. And um, I had actually had a lovely time making the record with, with Mick Ronson. I, I didn't have such a great time with Ian, but that's a, that's a separate uh, interview. That's a separate podcast, my friend. Um, so we make the record, and uh, we go out and tour the record. Back when labels would put a band out on the road and give you tour support, we got on the bus and went around. And the record basically fucking tanked. You know, um, it tanked. You know, it did nothing. So, but they were in. Like they were, they were full in. They were committed to this band. So we go. Now we begin to write to make a second record. And uh, the conversation starts about, well, who's going to produce the second record? Uh, is it, tell me if this is, if this gets boring, I'll switch, yeah. uh, you know. So he's like, who's going to make the second record, you know? So I had a relationship with the guys from Judas Priest. Um, I, I was, I, I had, I've been friends with Rob Halford since then, and I'm still friends with him to this day. And through that, through him, I knew Tom Allen, who had produced every Judas Priest record and Def, had done Def, Def Leppard and had done Loverboy and was a British producer and was a great guitar guitar producer, great producer just in general, but really a guitar producer. And uh, so I say, hey, I'll approach Tom Allen. And uh, they, they, they liked that idea. And so we met with Tom. Tom liked, I think Tom liked what he heard, came to New York to SIR, we rehearsed, we showed Tom some songs, and then we went to make uh, a record with that re the second record with Tom. We went to Miami. So now I returned to Miami to make a fucking record uh, on a major label. And making that record with Tom was the greatest experience I've ever had making a record. Making the first record had been miserable. Making this record was bliss because uh, I had a guy with me that under you know loved guitar, guitar players, and we just worked really well. And Tom is a, a friend to this day. When I was in London, actually, last um, I saw him. Whenever I'm there, I try and see him. So uh, we make we make that record, and uh, at that time, that record is coming out. Music is changing. You know, music is, music is turning. <clears throat> and, and suddenly we, we found ourselves really sort of out of style. You know what I mean? Um, and, uh, and that record subsequently doesn't do well. Um, so we get dropped by EMI, you know, 
and now we're in New York, and the band kind of, everybody goes their own way. Um, Cliff and I put put some other stuff together. We put with, uh, with a drummer called Peter Clemente. We tried to put some stuff together, not really, I didn't sort, we couldn't really sort of get anything going. And then, my, my, my um, ex-girlfriend, but the, the girlfriend who had brought me into the first band right. was at this point now my ex-girlfriend, but she is a person of tremendous vision, um, always was, like could see things. So she discovers these guys called Diving for Pearls. And Diving for Pearls was a band from Boston. Um, and they had, uh, it, was mainly, it was mainly, the main guys were, were Danny Malone and Jack Moran. Danny Malone, guitar player, songwriter, singer. And, and Jack was a uh, keyboard player, songwriter. Uh, and Danny and Jack had known each other. And they had other, there was other guys in the band. But, but um this 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 woman Gigi was like, yeah, you gotta you gotta change the band. I gotta I gotta change the band around you. That that's not that's not gonna work. So she goes and changes the band and brings me in and brings Peter Clemente in, who I had been playing with. And then I think Cliff was gonna go do his own thing. You know, he was doing something uh, with a band called the Zen Tricksters, and then he was sort of this stuff with some stuff with Grateful Dead and. Um, but we wound up getting this, this, this bass player, uh, David Weeks and we go and start making demos and she, um, gets a deal for this band at Epic. So we go and make, we go to Nashville and make the first Diving for Pearls record. Um, and that uh was uh quite honestly a pretty fucking horrible experience for me uh working with uh, a, a particular producer who, who I, I will not I, I won't name check um just just for his sake um so that but you know the record was good and you know we went around and played around and again music was changing man and um we were kind of out of favor with, with the current vibe, you know? So that band gets dropped and, um, and I'm in New York and I've been in New York a while. And, um, Really fucking long story, Steve. You you probably ready for a nap, aren't you? Oh um, no, I love I love stories like this because, because uh, I, I talked to somebody a, entertaining. Just a couple of guys kibitzing, you know what I mean? <laughs> exactly. Come on, a bunch of stuff. So. Uh, that band gets dropped, and Danny Malone, the singer in the band, who I, I'm, I'm still friends with with to, to this day, and I'm friends with Peter Clemente and, and Jack Moran, and uh, I, you know, I try and keep good friends around, you know, you, you know, even if we go to our own ways, you know. But uh, um, Danny had a girlfriend at the time, a woman called Camille Serio. Um, lovely woman and uh she worked for a talent agency in new york city um uh, an agency that represented um actors you know what i mean and uh oliver stone around that time was 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 making a movie about the doors um and camille said you know hey man you know i used to talk about acting with her because i knew she worked at an agent I, i'd always loved acting my my mother was an actress my grandmother worked at a box office for, for 31 years talk to me about actors and like you know she my grandma always used to say to me that i looked like um like tyrone power um when i was a little kid i'm like you know, you know it's funny you know it's funny you say that my mom i i know i've known a friend of mine mark esposito since first grade okay so i've known him forever and my mom used to always say the same thing she's like mark is so handsome he looks like a young tyrone powers there you go I mean, I guess Tyrone was was the guy to be. I don't know. I was a little kid. I didn't know who Tyrone Power was. Anyways, I didn't care. I wanted to be Jimmy Page. You know what I mean? Tyrone Power. Well, I don't fuck about that. So, so I, uh, Camille Seria and I used to talk about acting. Blah blah blah. She goes, "Hey, you know, you should come and meet my boss. Her boss was the agent that she worked for, which is this woman 
Holly Lebed, who um, is, is the next. Uh, I always say my uh, my my life has been a, a, a series of well executed decisions by, by very very smart women. Um, I've just been fortunate to fall into into the hands and the graces of uh, of amazing smart women who kind of pointed me in the direction and said maybe that you know. So this woman Holly Levitt, who uh, who I still know and friends with to this day. Amazing lady uh, said to me, "Hey man, you know I don't know if you can act or what. I have really long hair. You have to understand, I have crazy long hair. I was a guy in a rock band. I've been in a rock band my whole life. I didn't know from you know." She goes, uh, "You know, you seem like an interesting fellow. I don't know if you can act, but if you're serious about all, you know, doing any of this, I, I would, you know, I, I would need you to take an acting class. You know what I mean?" And uh, so I go. All right, cool. I always love studying and I love the craft of stuff. So she set me up with this teacher who I, and I land with, I land in the hands of this teacher called Bill Esper, who's the guy who really, you know, who changes my life, like just opens my, my brain and like opens my insides in, in a way like, like knew me better than like my father could ever know me. I mean, I didn't grow up with my father. My father stayed in Cuba. So my father doesn't really, he never knew me from Adam really, but but this guy, and it was, I remember thinking, do you know me better than my own father does? And he knew, he knew how to, and he came to me and he said, look, you know, um, because what happened was the, um, so I start, I start taking this acting class and the band didn't like it. I watched, you know, maybe the band, you know, Danny Malone, who really was the leader of the band at the time, I guess he didn't like it. And they sort of gave me this ultimatum really, um, which I think in hindsight, was foolish. Maybe they even think it was foolish, but um, they're like, Hey man, you know, we, we're trying to get another deal. We're floundering. Like you're either going to do this acting thing or you're going to be in the band. You know, we can't don't dig you doing both. You have to kind of make a decision. So I literally went back and I spoke to Bill, my teacher. And I'm like, I was, I just started in this acting class, man. You know, I was like, and he, and he said, look, uh, you know, that's a very tough decision that you have to make yourself. But, uh, but if you ask me if I think that you have talent, my answer is yes. I think you do, but you're very new you have to develop and you have to craft. And so I went back and I fucking quit the band. I left the fucking band. Now it's, was that hard because you know, you were yeah, it was very hard I mean, because you're so attached to music. And we think about it, you know, and you, you, of course, in music, you had the ups and the downs. You know, the, the landscape changed the music. So you go from, oh, wow, we've been doing this, and now this is it. I mean, I know it was hard, but mentally, when you first made the choice, did you start regretting it at all in the very beginning? Well, the, the, an interesting thing happened when I started to take this acting class. So I started in the summer, a thing called the summer intensive. And, and I... I started to, I was very unhappy, you know, I was very, very unhappy in, 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 in the band, really, in the, in the situation. It was sort of not really, I liked the music, but it wasn't music that I, at the time I was, I was really wanting to do. Um, my, my instincts have always skewed way heavier, you know, so I start taking this acting class and in, in doing this class and doing these exercises and working in the class, I start to become uh, a more, a happier person. I start emotionally to be freer. And I had these emotional breakthroughs in class that left me exhausted, but, but incredibly satisfied. And so when I made the decision to leave the band, I thought, well, this, I like how this feels. You know what I mean? This feels good. And um, so I'm, I'm going to take the plunge. I don't know where this is going to go. Um, did I regret it? I don't think I regretted it, really. Because I, I, was, I was loving the class. Um, and I really, <clears throat> it's weird. I, I, I always knew that I could act. <clears throat> it's weird. It's, you have you you have to know that you can act. It's a weird muscle thing, or muscle. I don't know. Something you have to know um, internally. You know, you can't teach anybody how to act. You can teach them craft. And you can 
open their minds and you can really, really help them, you know. But you, you can't teach someone the mechanics of acting. You either can listen and act or you can't. You can get better at it, but you have to have a, some ability, I think. My opinion. Um, I think it's also Bill Esper's opinion because I think he said, I can't teach you guys how to act, but I can, I can help you. I mean, so, and it was true, really, you know. And he also said something that was, nobody in the class wanted to hear, which is like, it takes 20 years to make an actor. You know, Sandy Meisner said it takes 20 years, really, to make an actor. And uh, there's a lot of truth to what he said, you know. But that's the story. Six months after I'm in that class, I get my first job as an actor, and that's a movie called The Mambo Kings. And I go to L.A. to make this movie, and they cut all my hair off. Um, Bill got Bill Esther got very mad because I was interrupting my training, but he but he, he was mad and he was proud of me. And uh, and I may remember he took me out for a drink uh, after after yelling at me. Took me out for a drink, and uh, I went. I went to make this film. You know, I, I had to work. You know, I I didn't. I, I had to work. I had to go to work. So. Uh, I did so, but when I was done with the film, I, I came back and I continued my training. So I always I would go to work and I would come back and I would continue with my training. And then, um, and that brings us to us, Steve, to you and me right now. Well, I mean, that's I, really I, how we get here. Yeah, well, it's so funny. been in the band since, brother. I it's just you know it's funny because the, the acting you start and you start getting parts, and I know you know, and you just said it takes a long time, and, and there's a lot of you know rejection and there's a lot of auditions but how was the early days of your career and then was Seinfeld a big jolt for your career because everyone was watching Seinfeld and you know it's to this day people still watch it but how was it how was it in the early days when you were getting auditions what were you going out for were you because were you going out for you know, a criminal? Were you going out for a lawyer? Were you going out as a musician because they knew you were a musician? What were the early parts? What were the early career sets? You know, kind of all, all, all the above. I, I think I, I think there was a lot of criminals. Uh, <laughs> you know, there was uh, uh, criminals. There was uh, there was lawyers. I, I played. I remember early on, I did a movie, the first movie that Forrest Whitaker directed. I played a public defender. Um, uh, I played. Um, I did Law and Order a few times, you know, the obligatory Law and Orders, you know, I did, uh, um, uh, I got one of my, or one of my early jobs was, again, uh, you know, a testament to, to Holly Levitt, the, 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 there was a show called Tales from the Crypt, which is a very prestigious show. Uh, a lot of prestigious directors and actors would do the shows, very sort of, Hollywood, but like super cool horror thing, as you, I'm sure you know it. Um, so the, there was a part on the show, it was the lead in the show, and they, would, they wouldn't see me for it because I was nobody. They were like, no, we only see star names, you know. And I don't know, I guess maybe some stars. When they, I, don't, I don't know. But Holly Levitt convinces these fucking guys to see me. And it was directed by Billy Friedkin, you know, and I was like a huge Billy Friedkin fan, you know. French Connection and, and, and Sorcerer and Exorcist and Cruising. I mean, this is one of the great, great American directors, you know, one of the iconic American filmmakers. He's directing the show and they wouldn't see me. She convinces them to see me. So I go in and I audition and I get the fucking part, but it was, it was a lead singer in a rock band. I said, I understand this fucking part. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> And I knew that I could do the acting, you know, because it required you to, to act, you know. It, it, so it, it, so I get that part and that, you know, I meet Billy, you know, and I start, you know, I was talking about him the other day at work, just about I would have, I would have lunch with him and, and just ask him literally a million questions about everything I could think of, you know, about cruising, about French Connection. And he would just, he was so generous with me. He... He would just answer everything. You know, he never said, stop asking me questions, kid. You know, he was like, what do you want to know? Ask me. You know what I mean? Well, I want to ask you, though, about Seinfeld. 
because 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 that show that and it's from the Soup Nazi episode, your first time on, which has become yes. like a pop culture icon. I've had Larry on the show, and his his yeah. whole life's never been the same. I mean, yeah. when you went for that audition, because me and my wife are both big Seinfeld fans, and you, and your character is like is a gay bully. He's a bully, and that's what's funny yeah. about it. But when you went for that audition. What did the script? What, what did the What was the casting call? Was it for you to be a bully, or was that just something you improv and went with that? No, it's it's well, it's written. Uh, it, it's the the name of the character is Bob the Intimidating Gay Guy. <laughs> That's the actual name of the character on the script. So uh, that again is Holly Lebed. Holly Lebed. I was in L.A. And uh, they, this is a last-minute audition. She's like, can you get down to CBS Radford in 30 minutes? And I go, what? She goes, this is part on Seinfeld um, called Bob the Intimidating Gay Guy. And I'm like, and in her, in her head, she was like, this is perfect for you. And I was like, all right, well. I, so I, I go down there, man. I go down there. You know, it's one of those deals where you go down there, you get you get the sides right there. They hand you the sides. You give them a few minutes. You look at the sides, and then you go in and you and you and you take a swing, you know. So I had an idea to do it an an imitation of my mother. So that's what that is. That's an impersonation, basically, of my mom. My mom had a very heavy accent, and my mom was super fucking intimidating. And in your face, like, because like my mother was a very, a very uh, protective, uh, you know, powerful Cuban mother, you know, and you know exactly you, you know exactly what I'm talking about, you know. It's like, it's like my kids are like, I like, I, I always, I always say that the reason I've never done any drugs in my life, and I haven't, and people who know me know that that's true. Is because I was always terrified that my mother would find out and would fucking kill me. And literally, like, that got me to adulthood and without ever doing drugs. I'm like, you know what? I'm good. I didn't need to do that shit. I'm all right. You know, I love me some tequila once in a while, but that's it. I smoked cigarettes for a while, but I quit and haven't smoked in 10 years. Anyways, so I get to this audition and I'm like, what am I going to fucking do with this part? And I go, and for some reason I go, I'm going to do, I'm going to do that. I, and I go in the room, and I fucking do that. And I remember Larry David and and um, and Jerry were sitting in the room. And I go in and I do that, and I and I stop, and they look at me and they're like, "What the fuck is that?" And I'm like, <laughs> "Well, it's kind of an impersonation of my mom." This and that. He goes like, "Can you do it again?" I go, "Yeah." He goes, "All right, we'll do it again." So I did it again. And they're like, okay, wait, wait outside. You know, they, they, they used to do this crazy shit where you would literally have, have actors wait outside. Because this was, this was, this was going to work the next day. You know, I don't know if you know, you know how TV works yeah. sometimes. They write this character, you know, Spike, Spike Ferenstein wrote that episode, has, had just come from writing SNL. Um, he had been on SNL for a long time, which is how he knew the soup Nazi. Because all the SNL guys would go down the street to 8th Avenue and 55th Street, which is where the fucking soup guy was, and they would get soup. So that's how they knew this crazy soup guy was there. So Spike writes that episode and writes his character. And that, I guess they wrote it last minute. It was like the audition was last minute. Go down there, boom. You go, you wait outside. Then they come out and they say, so-and-so can leave. And then you go back in and you do that. And then finally they go, everybody leaves. And then they... You got the job, be here tomorrow at 11 o'clock in the morning, whatever, you know what I mean? Literally, like, that's what it, you know. So I go to work the next day, you know, and I, we start to rehearse. And uh, I have uh, incredible memories of of seeing Larry David directing me, doing the character. So just imagine Larry David <laughs> doing that character showing me how he wants me to do it. He goes, then you go like this, you know, and I'm like, I'm like, this is fucking incredible. You know what I mean? Um, and they could not have been nicer people. Uh, I was, I was very new, man. I was very new. And I was like, I was suddenly in this gigantic show 
um, with these superstars. And, and, and by the time, by the time I, I, by the time I go on that show, that show was already a very well oiled, successful machine, you know, and I had never seen that, you know, and many, I was like, this is, was amazing, you know? And, um, so I got, they had a four day work week, you know, they would, they come in, you rehearse a little bit, you sit down and you have bagels. And I, and I don't, I don't mean like, like the craft service there was like, it was lox and every kind of cream cheese. And what kind of bagel do you want? I mean, it was, they had a lot of money, you know, very, very successful, wealthy show. And I was like, this is crazy. I've never seen anything in my life. Olive oils, you know, like, would you like some cherry? What olive oil do you want? The hot pepper. I mean, it was like, this fucking nuts. When, when you shoot on the lot, that guy would come around with a hot dog cart. You know, <laughs> sauerkraut. Might want a hot dog? I'm like, sure. Like, it was just unreal, man. So I got very lucky. I landed in the hands of these these geniuses, really, for lack, lack of a better... I mean, that's what they are. They were all... They all are. Julia, Louis Dreyfus, all of them, Michael Richards. I mean, you know, you know, Julia, later on, after I did Captain Phillips, which is years after doing Seinfeld... Julia Louis-Dreyfus tweeted something that was really was very touching. She tweeted you at Yul Vasquez. She said, I can't believe this is the same guy that was on, that was bought the intimidating gay guy. You know I mean? And I was like, I was so honored. I was so moved by that gesture. Um, so yeah, then the Seinfeld kept bringing me back, you know, so I kept, I did, I wound up doing three and that's, really also where I meet David Mandel, who I'm working with right now, David was, had been a writer on Seinfeld. So, you know, that, uh, that connects me in a way to David as well. So David also was a showrunner for Veep, I believe. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So, okay. So you do Seinfeld, then you're working through, working through the years, you're getting work. And then, you know, you know, I'm an IMDB guy. And then you just look, all of a sudden, you just explode. I mean, seriously, like, you just, with great work, writers, great teams. I mean, I love the Magic City. I was pissed when it got canceled, and I, I don't know, I think it costs a lot of money, or I don't know, but I remember watching that show. Is that when your career started kicking really in high gear? Yeah, that's very, that's a very astute observation on your part, because, Magic City, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, so right before Magic City, I do a play on Broadway called The Motherfucker with the Hat, which is which is a play that starts out, uh, and we think we're doomed. We weren't really sort of, tickets weren't selling, and it was sort of kind of limping, and then the play opens and the reviews are like stellar, you know, stellar. Um and I think, you know, right, rightfully so, because the play was incredible by an incredible writer, one of the most important writers in American theater, for sure. Like, they will be doing his work well after he's gone, you know. And a great director, a director who loves to see humans on stage, not histrionic shenanigans, a woman called Anna Shapiro, uh, who won the Tony for... August Osage County. So those pieces come together. I do this part in a play. I get a Tony nomination that changes the game for me. You know what I mean? I don't win the Tony, but it almost didn't matter. You know I mean? Some people think I did win the Tony. You know what I mean? That changes, that changes the game. And, um, I had just auditioned. I had made a tape. I had gone to do a tape for Magic City for Mitch Mitch Glazer, who 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 I didn't know becomes my boss, becomes my friend, becomes my brother. You know that's my relationship with Mitch now. You know what I mean? Uh, and with and with Jeffrey Dean Morgan uh, and and a co- and Christine Cook. I love folks on the show. You know Dominique and and, and stuff. You know Garcia Rito. But so. Um, I go and Mitch likes to tape. Mitch likes to tape, and they wanted me. They wanted me to do come to a chemistry reader in L.A. I couldn't. I was I was doing the play in New York, and 
I was only dark on Mondays. I would have had to flown out on a Sunday after a matinee, taken a red eye, gotten there, been super tired, gone in Monday Monday morning, done the chemistry, and flown back so I could make the show Tuesday. And I just was like, I was, I didn't think it was it was good for me. I just thought it was going to be too much. So my my manager, Elise Canelian, um, does a brilliant move and says to them. Listen, he's not going to be able to do it, but he just got the Tony nomination and you guys are going to have to make a decision. You know, you saw his tape, you can make him an offer or we can move on and that's okay, but he's not going to be able to come out and do the chemistry. So Mitch, in his infinite wisdom, well, what's really crazy is that Mitch had no idea when he cast me. Anyway, Mitch says, okay, okay, we're going to go with him. But Mitch doesn't know, A, that I'm Cuban, B, that I had grown up in Miami Beach, and that I knew that world intimately well. And when I when I when I told him this, he just he was like he like he's like he hit a jackpot. He's like, Are you fucking kidding me? I'm like, no, Mitch. I lived on fifteenth in Pennsylvania. He's like, I grew up on Palm Island. I was like, you know, I was like his mother taught at my high school. I mean, it was fucking nuts. You know what I mean? So that's the Magic City story. Then we go shoot Magic City. And Magic City, arguably the most beautiful show I've ever been in. Um, stunning. Uh, in fact, we just lost. Uh, the production designer on that show just passed away. And, and he was, and again, another fucking genius. Because uh, what he did with that show is incredible. We did two seasons of that show. It was heartbreaking to see that show go. It broke Mitch's heart. It broke all our hearts. I think it was a show on a network nobody was watching. You know what I mean? If that show came out today, where Stars is today, that show runs for five seasons. You know what I mean? Um, you know, but we all wanted to continue um, doing the show. And in fact, you know, there's something I can't really talk about that's cooking that, again, would return us to Miami. Um, so, you know, we'll see, we'll see. Cause a lot of people now involved with that show have become very, very successful, particularly, uh, Jeffrey Dean Morgan. Um, you know, um, and Jeff has, a, you know, he's got a lot of, he has a lot of weight now, you know, um, Jeff can flex now. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and I love that he's my friend, so I feel protected. <laughs> now, after that show, as you know, you look at it, you know, you, Treme, Bloodline, Divorce, you know, all these shows that are all cable, which is always yeah. good. Are these becoming, because of the Tony nomination and because of Magic City, because people did like the show, it got good, it got good reviews. Mm-hmm. Were these all being started becoming offers to you or were you still having to audition? Some were becoming offers. I think people... People started to, you know, it's really, it's, it's really, um, it's an interesting thing, this, 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 this world of ours, man. You know, um, I'm, you know, Sam, Sam Rockwell is a friend of mine, is a guy I know very well, and we were in acting class together, you know, and then I remember when Sam started to have a lot of success and people said, oh my God, Sam's starting to have a lot of success. And I remember saying to them, he's not doing anything different than he did before. It's just somebody's paying attention now. I mean, something, something switches and people now start looking and go, oh, wait a minute, I saw this guy and this and this. And they start, it, it, I believe it's cumulative. You know what I mean? I believe it's cumulative. And I think, and with, with the right reps behind you, you know, sort of guiding it, you know, it, they can really finesse the situation. So I was reading for things. I still read for things. Um, but sometimes things just come to me. You know what I mean? The show I'm doing now just just came to me, you know, because David said, I always wanted you for this part. And I went after you. I mean, so, so, you know, I, um, I, I try not to, uh, I will read for something if, but if, if you're coming to me and you want me to read for something that, and the part is not terrible, not, it's not that big. And, and you, now you want me to jump through hoops. I'm probably not going to do it. You know I mean, if it's if you're really interested in me and a part is substantial and, and you want to have a work session, you know, like I did that with Ben Stiller, 
for for severance. You know what I mean? Ben Ben said, you know, and I've known Ben for ages, but we we never worked together. He's like, hey, I had this part. I want to do a work session with you. So we did it. We did it right in the middle of the pandemic. We did it on Zoom. You know, we worked. We we hashed through it. You know, we like, you know, and then he's like, great. I want I want you to come do this part for me. Um, and then and then we did it. You know what I mean? And I've seen some of it, and it looks incredible. That show is going to be bananas. Now, now, as an actor, and as I said, you know, you've done Netflix shows. You know, we can we can, get, we can go on. You know, Narcos, Russian Doll. You know, yeah. The Outsider. As an actor, do you feel a lot more freedom being on a cable outlet where there is really no? You know, when you're a network, you have to watch whatever you say. You know, I'm sure sometimes you're in the moment and you want to drop an F-bomb, but you really yeah. can't. How has it been? How has, has that helped your career a lot, getting that freedom of working for cable networks? Um, you know, well, that's, that's a really good question because um, sometimes I'm allowed to improvise a lot of things. Um, people just love me. I, I, I don't ask if I can. I just do it because my, my, my feeling is they'll tell you when they don't want you to do it, you know what I mean? But, you know, you could sit on an impulse of something that it could be really terrific and, and not do it because you're afraid that they're not going to like it. But you can't worry about what they like. You just have to do it, you know. Um, I think premium cable affords you that freedom to be untethered a little bit. You know, you there's network TV. You can't really improvise that much. It's very... You know, there's, there's, there's time constraints. You know, they're going to cut to commercials and they're going to do, you know, there's, there's things to be aware of. So um, there's some great stuff happening on, uh, on network TV. There's a lot of great stuff happening on premium channels. I mean, you know, quite honestly, I think it's one of the reasons, you know, you know Steven Soderbergh was going was gonna to retire and then he decided to do the Nick. And, you know, he had, he loved doing the Nick, had a great time. He directed all of them and it was finite and he knew that that's what he was going to do. And, you know, he felt that premium channels is where the really good shit was happening, you know, and he felt, um, felt it was better than some movies, you know, and then of course he went back to movies and did whatever, but, you know, but he, he really enjoyed that. And he thought, he felt that there was accountability in, in, in the world of premium cable so you had to make good stuff you know what i mean you know now you couldn't clone that in now with narco you did narcos i want to ask you about a few of your later roles lately and and why you chose them and what your experience was like narcos mexico what made you choose that as an actor what makes you choose a role like that you know that that came to me i was i was in la doing um uh, i am the night uh and that came to me and it was to play a real politician as an ambassador uh, as a U.S. ambassador to Mexico at that time. And the guy was an actor. It was kind of like kind of like kind of like Reagan had been. You know, what I mean, it was really nutty. The guy had been an actor and uh, and it was fun. You know, it was fun. I um, I liked uh, I liked the part and I liked the guys in it. I knew. Um, I knew Michael Pena a little bit. We we weren't really like close friends, but I knew him, and I liked there was and a couple other guys in it that were really great, you know. Um, and I uh, I worked in Mexico before. I'd done Gringo in Mexico, and I liked working in Mexico, you know. Um, so it was like the com- the time commitment wasn't large, and then I wound up. I think I wound up doing I don't know four. I don't even know how many I did, but um, uh, or three or uh, um. It was cool. It was very easy to go from um, L.A. to Mexico. You know what I mean? Uh, um, and then I was in New York, and then I... Uh, that was easy, too. It's just... It was cool. I actually enjoyed doing that, and, and I enjoyed... They did something really smart. They hired a lot of these really, really talented uh, Mexican independent film directors that are really, really good. You know, that had made some really amazing indies and won, like, festivals and like and they sort of gave them all this freedom to make to do to, to shoot cool stuff and i think they did you know so that was cool so you do something like that but then you pick uh 
Russian Doll, which you can say is quirky. It's a very quirky. I watched it. It was very yeah. good, but it's quirky. So as an actor, did you, did you sit there and want to flex your muscles somehow, or, or why did you decide to pull that? Russian Doll. Russian Doll is an interesting one because I, I friends, I, I, I'm friends with Natasha. I was friends with her before I did the show. So I was again doing I Am the Night, and Natasha called and said, "Please do this show for uh, that I'm going to do. You're going to play my like love interest." Um, I don't get the opportunity, uh, even though you said how handsome I am in your intro, um, I don't often get the opportunity to play the romantic lead. Um, usually play like the heavy or like some crazy kooky comedy character, but like, you know, I, I, I don't get the chance to be like, as they say in the business, the guy who kisses the girl. Um, so this was an opportunity to play the romantic lead. I knew Natasha, I knew her and I would jam, and, and we really jammed on that show. You know what I mean? Like, like we improvised a lot of that stuff. And um, amazingly, that show did a lot for me because um, people saw me in a different light. You know, I think my manager is my, her favorite stuff I ever did, uh, you know. I've done, I've worked with John Sayles and done like these movies in like four languages and my manager's like, yeah, that's great. I don't care about that. I, you know, it's it's amazing. She's like, like, yeah, yeah, blah, 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 blah. Oh, artsy movie, you know, but Russian Doll, I mean, you know, so it's cool. Russian Doll was actually, and I met cool people, you know, Rebecca Henderson became a friend of mine and, um, you know, Leslie Headland and, and folks that I really admire. I admired Leslie's work big time from Smilf. Um, which I thought was an incredible show. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I'd, I'd love to work with Frankie Shaw. You know I mean, I think there's some exceptionally gifted people out there that uh, are just killing it, man. You know, and she's one of them. You well, know, you're working a lot. This is amazing. Huh? You're working a lot. You know, you're doing these shows. Then HBO, The Outsider, comes up. And, and this one of those things that... There's something about a Sunday night HBO show that there's a very good chance people are going to watch it. I mean, you saw Mayor of uh, the Mayor of East. Yeah, Mayor, Mayor of Easttown. Yeah, and and but then with the Outsider, me and my watch, me and my wife watched it. Did you think that would get that following because it was good? And you had a very good role in that. You had you had a good role. I mean, was that an offer or was that an audition? I, I had to read for that. I I made a tape for that. Um, I knew it was Jason Bateman uh, who who I knew personally a little bit um, and I liked him and I liked his directing work and I knew he was, I knew he was only going to be in three episodes, but he was going to direct the first block and he was, he was a producer on it. And I, oh, and I admired Ben Mendelsohn's work. You mean? So, um, and I think the, the, the cast they were putting together was crazy. So I, I did have to read for that. And then, and then I had to do a Skype with Jason Bateman, um, where he basically came on the Skype and said, "I," he said, "Listen, man, you you basically got this part. There's no there's no competition, really. I just wanted to make sure that you hadn't turned into an asshole since last time I saw you. <laughs> so I just want I just want to talk to you, man. So it was great, you know. Um, I I like doing that show. I mean, I love working with those actors. Um, uh, surrounded by just great actors, uh, became very good friends with uh, with Bill Camp and." Um, and uh, and Mayor and uh, you know Mayor Winningham and Julian Nicholson and, and Jeremy Bob I knew uh, from Russian Doll I love Jeremy and uh, and then Patty Constantine uh, was this unexpected gift uh, and I became really tied with him and we share the love of music and uh, you know uh, it was cool it was great uh, it was, I, I love doing that part and 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 you don't know this but they're they were writing a second season, which was going to be a great season for me. Um, but then HBO decides they, they weren't going to continue with it. And then they tried to move it to another, to somewhere else. And um, I don't think, I don't know, they couldn't get any um, traction for it. So, um, but I knew that the second season was going to be, uh, I was going to have a great, a uh, great arc in that season. So, you know, maybe it'll come somewhere else, you know? Now, 
earlier. It's you a mentioned. bummer, you know. But, but it, it would have been great. I really enjoyed that show, and that's once again like Magic City. I enjoyed it. Disappeared. Yeah. You mentioned Severance. What is Severance? Severance is a, a show on Apple. It's very uh, hard to explain. It's a high concept show. It's about a company. And there's a procedure that happens. Can't really say a lot about it, but it's kind of futuristic and um, and just super cool looking, man. Um, and Ben Stiller, I don't know if you've ever had the chance to interview him or not, but uh, I mean, one of the greatest directors I've ever worked with and for, and uh, a guy I trust like implicitly that I know he's not gonna let me look like a, like an idiot. You know, the other guy was Philip Seymour Hoffman, the director that will drive you like Ben Ben's hard. Ben's a demanding director, but you know, but you want that, you know, you, you want somebody who's taking you to the limits, man. You know what I mean? And that's what Phil Hoffman would do. And, and, and Phil would say, Hey, I don't care if, if people like me or they like the play or, but what's, what's never going to happen is you, I'm going to never going to let you guys look bad. You know what I mean? And when you have a director tell you that that's, that's a big deal. Cause at least, you know, the, the biggest fear is looking like an asshole, you know? So, you know, because you go out on a limb for somebody and then you watch it and you're like, hey, you know, why didn't you do something? Why, why would you let me do this, you know? Um, I remember my first day of work on Books of Blood, I said to Brian and Braga, my first day of work on this fucking movie, which I, I love doing and I love Brandon, was a day where these I'm being attacked by these rats, and the rats are, they're going to be CGI rats. Okay. So I'm basically reacting to rats that aren't fucking there, Steve. And I said, and that's my first day, literally like with Brandon. And I looked at Brandon and I said, I was like, I said, I'm going to tell you something. I said, in front of everybody, I said, if I watch this back and you let me look like a fucking asshole, I'm going to fucking come to your house. He said, what do you mean? I was like, you know what I mean? You better shoot this. You know what I mean. Don't let me look like an idiot here. I'm going out. Of, this is a real limb we're going out on here, okay? We are now, there's no net here, baby. You know, so please take care of me here. Like, shoot it. You know, hook a brother up here, you know? And he did. And he did. To, to his word, he did. Now, now, you're in D.C. Is that for White House plumbers? White House plumbers. Yeah, we have been doing this since May. So tell me about the. Can you talk about the show at all? About Watergate. It's Watergate. You know, we had you have you have E. Howard Hunt. You have Gordon Liddy. You have all the plumbers. I play Bernard Barker. Um, one of the plumbers. Gordon Liddy's played by Justin Thoreau, and Howard Hunt is Woody Harrelson. Now, how's the shoot been going? We're. I mean, we're. We're having, we're really having a blast. I mean, it's a comedy, you know, kind of in the style of, I would say, a Veep, you know. And it's just beautiful. I mean, it's being shot by Steve Meisler, who just won the Emmy for Queen's Gambit. Um, it's going to look ridiculous, uh, ridiculously beautiful. Um, we've we shot a lot of the interiors uh, in Newburgh and Poughkeepsie in New York. That's where the stages were. And um, so now we're on the... We're shooting all, we're getting the exteriors. We're getting, we're here in Washington, getting all the Watergate Hotel stuff. We're staying in the Watergate Hotel. I'm literally staying down the hallway from the actual room where these guys did the, did the shenanigans. Um, wait, you got to see this. I hope you can see this. This is, this is, this is a hotel. This, this is the room key. Okay. Isn't that great? Yeah. So, so we're here, you know, we're, we're here. And then we, we finish in LA. We got to get the, the LA stuff is the, the stuff they do prior to Watergate when they break into, you know, Fielding's office to get the stuff on, on Ellsberg. And uh, it's, I mean, it's true to like, it's historically accurate. You know, uh, the guy, you know, Peter Hayek and Alex Gregory who wrote it are incredible, just fucking incredible. Um, and David Mandel's amazing, and his, his direction is amazing, and he uh, he understands comedy like, I mean, he gives these notes that are brilliant, you know, these sort of timing notes, and 
they're just great. And, and, and we are improving the fuck out of this. And David's coming up with stuff on the fly. And Peter and Alex are always there, like, and like, lines, new lines are coming in right away. Something like that's not working. Put, here, try this line. You know I mean, and it's been great. It's it's a real, it's a real like live process. You know what I mean? Um, which you don't always get. You know, you don't. Some people don't want to work like that, but you got to have the right, you got to have the right pieces to work like that. You have to be able to work on the fly like that. You know, and if you don't have the right the right, the right, the, the right actors involved in directing shit will never work. You know, it's, you can't. There's actors you can't change a dot. They're like that. You know, are you not going to stop there? And I'm like, I don't know where I'm going to stop. Right. I, are you not, are you listening or not listening? <laughs> exactly. I have I have one final question, which yeah. I started in the beginning. The painting. Where did the painting come from? When did you start painting? The painting came from the photography. So I started with the, the photography started. The photography started really a long time ago because my, my mom bought me a camera at a thrift store in Miami Beach, a $5 camera that I still have. It's a little Bellows Kodak camera. It doesn't really work, uh, but I've had it for a long time. But I was always, I loved cameras. I'm a camera nerd. I love the machines themselves. In fact, I always talk to camera department guys about cameras and about lenses. I know, you know, I love, I love the machines. I love the machinery of it. I think cameras are, are beautiful beautiful things i have um i mean i the couch behind me here is i have old film cameras in there that i brought with me because i wanted to photograph some things here so started taking pictures and the picture started developing you know i started developing the picture i was like i found it to be another avenue to me for me to sort of create um and Pictures started coming more and more and more. And then I, from somehow from the pictures, I, I morphed into, I started drawing in a, um, in a sketch pad. And, uh, and, and then um, my, my buddy, my buddy, Dan, who I call giant Dan, uh, who owns Chelsea guitars in New York, by the coolest guitar store in, in, in the world, started seeing the paintings and he goes, uh, Hey man, you know, those are, those are good. He's like, he's thought of going bigger. I mean, I'm like, you know, I, I don't have the space. I don't have a studio. Like, you know, so I started going bigger at home. And then, and then I did a collaboration of some photographs with another artist, my friend, Jordi Moya, who's, who's an actor, who you, I'm sure you know who he is. Um, so we took, we took my photographs, we blew them up four feet tall and he painted over those. And that, and that collaboration was really cool. We just showed that in Miami and uh, sold actually the, the whole show. Uh, it was sold to one, one person. But um, so before that, I started to paint bigger and I got a studio space in, in Miami. I have, a, I have a home in Miami as well. Um, and I have, um, so upstairs there, I, 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 uh, I got a studio space. Um, and I started the painting, started going and going. And then, this, um, again, women, smart women said, uh, Hey, let's do a show with your stuff in New York. Um, my, my, my friend, Frankie, Frankie Sinkowicz and, uh, brought me to this woman, Gloria Porcella, who's a very big gallerist. Her father was a gallerist. She has, a, she has a gallery in Chelsea. She says, I, I like your stuff. Let's do a show. So we did a show and it did well. And now. I showed it in Miami and this other thing, and now I'm, I think I'm doing something for Basel in Miami with, with Gloria. So the paintings are, people started buying the paintings. You know what I mean? I didn't, I never set out to make the paintings thinking anybody was going to buy the paintings, but the paintings have now taken on a life of their own. And what I love about the paintings and about photography, Steve, is that it's just direct line between me and the thing. There's no director, there's no editor there's no nothing there's no writer it's purely like and a lot of the paintings a lot of the stuff in the paintings comes from my childhood and there's very personal things in there about my mother and that's where a lot of the paintings come from they have a little bit of maybe one could call uh an uh an occult leaning towards them which i think basquiat you basquiat being i think haitian 
had a connection to a certain world of voodoo, you know. And I think a lot of people don't realize that's in a lot of his paintings. So Basquiat was in, in, very influenced by a guy that's one of my favorite painter, a guy called Cy Twombly. Um, and so <clears throat> that's where that came from. Things I saw as a kid, you know, this iconography, you know, and that's in the paintings, you know. And um, if you go, I have a website you can go to. There's nothing about acting on it. It's just, in fact, if you didn't know I was an actor, you'd think just a guy called Yul Vasquez. It just says photos and paintings. Right. And it says New York, Miami. And like, you can't buy anything. It's not for sale. It's just like, you can go look at shit and like it, hate it. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> you know? Well, it's good work. And that's how I found you. I connected you through that website. So, so thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, I'm looking forward to the new shows. People, go follow him on Twitter. Go to go to his website, Yul Vasquez. It's a V-A-Z-S-Q-E-Z. Don't be confused with V-A-S, because sometimes too, but he's V-A-Z-Q-U-E-Z. Follow him on Twitter. It's the same name. And go on his I need page. I need some more Instagram followers, Steve. Okay, is it the same? Is it the same? No, it's, my, my Instagram handle is Illuminati. Okay, so people, just Google Yul Vasquez. Instagram, and that will take you there. And go to my Instagram, CooperTalk1. Go to my Twitter, CooperTalk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 875 episodes there. Uh, email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Don't remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.